0: I'll be continuing um, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 14 through 18. If you want to take a moment to turn there. Ephesians 2, 14 through 18. Likely, I will read what Dale um, preached last week, So we, because the two are very closely related and, and are complementary. So I'll read from Ephesians chapter 2. Verses 11 through 18. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope, our passage this morning and we, we're continuing on in this discussion in this letter to the church in Ephesus, to the Ephesian letter. And Paul has been dealing with the issue of Jew and Gentile. And Dale did an excellent job last week of, of explaining sort of that, that conflict, sort of the, the division that was in place. And we can look back in history, we can look back in the Bible, and understand that enmity is a result of the fall. Can you imagine the argument between Adam and Eve after, after they partook of the forbidden fruit? Can you imagine the argument that ensued? The, uh, the finger-pointing and the blaming... And all those things and the the subsequent arguments that happened over the years. If Adam lived to be 900 and some years old, can you imagine how, how many arguments they had over this? The dissension. How long did it take after man was, after the fall, until the first murder? One generation. One generation. How long was it from the fall until God decided to destroy all of mankind except one family? Ten generations. Enoch, who would have been Noah's grandfather, was alive when Adam was alive. There were ten generations separate. Could you imagine knowing your grandfather ten generations back? But in only ten generations, God Decided to wipe out all of humanity. Why? Because of their wickedness. Because of their warring. Because of the, the, the conflict between one another and the conflict between man and God. Ten generations. It's very easy for us to divide ourselves up. Um, we divide on anything. We divide based on gender, um, nationality, skin color. Sports teams, political affiliation, religion, whether you're an Android or a Mac person. We make all kinds of divisions. It's very easy, uh, very natural for us in our flesh to do. Uh, And even, even within one specific religious groups, Baptists will say, there are Baptist churches that are meeting today that I wouldn't be welcome to attend in this county. We make divisions very easily. It's natural for us. We have division within our own homes. There, there is there are arguments between spouses. We have, if you have children, you understand this acutely. Uh, There is strife and contention present present in every facet of our lives, whether it's at work, whether it's at home. We have strife within ourselves. We have conflict, we have enmity with our own being. Especially if you're a Christian, then every day we contend with the old man, that flesh that desires to sin. And this is the curse of sin, that we never know peace in the flesh. Now from where we sit this morning, um, it seems like a pretty peaceful situation that we're in. Um we seem to be in a relative time of peace. And a lot of that is because we're shielded from many of the the decades long conflicts that are going on around the world in, in places like Yemen or in Sudan, um where for generations all they've known is war. We don't see that here. If you if you Google active wars in the world, there's a map. And if you look at the map of Africa, about eighty percent of Africa, the countries within the continent of Africa, are at war currently, and it's it's, uh, terroristic insurgency, it's uh, rebellions, it's drug wars, and on and on and on. So the majority of just the, that one continent, is at war, but we don't see that. Just because we don't have troops landing on our shores, it doesn't mean that we have peace. In fact, I would contend that there is no peace apart from Christ, and I think that 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 we will see that as we we look into our uh, our scripture this morning. And I I understand very graciously. Um, I don't want to to co-opt or hijack the. Uh, a context of this passage from jeremiah but I, I read in my reading this week jeremiah 6 so i'll read from us jeremiah uh, 6 um probably verse 9 to 15 they shall glean thoroughly as a vine of the remnant of israel like a grape gatherer shall pass your hand over its branches to whom shall i speak and give warning that they may hear behold their ears are uncircumcised They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Therefore, I am full of the wrath of the Lord. I am weary of holding it in. Pour it out upon the children in the street and upon the gatherers of young men also. Both husband and wife shall be taken and the elderly and the very aged. Their houses shall be turned over to others, their fields and wives together, for I will stretch out my hand against the inhabitants of the land, declares the Lord. From the least to the greatest of them, everyone is greedy for unjust gain, and from prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. They were ashamed. When, uh, were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At that time that I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says the Lord. So I read this this week and and I thought about it and particularly the part where in verse 14 it says, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace. And I think within the Western church, we have done this from the pulpit where we have preached peace, peace to the people, and we have led many people to believe that they are not at enmity with God, though they be apart from Him. And we have two different kinds of peace that we're going to talk about today um, the first one I, I want to I want to make a point so that we don't, so that we aren't confused, and the second one is what Paul was more specifically dealing with. Um, but we are like Israel; we we feel a peace that isn't real, an external peace uh, that is that is false. Um, while while man stands in conflict with one another, we can see that that's evidence. Our greatest struggle isn't with one another; it's with God. From from conception. And we, we see in Psalm 51.4, I, I think two weeks ago uh, this was brought up again, but against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgments. So this is David in Psalm 51.4 confessing his sin before God and saying that against you and you alone have I sinned. Now, obviously, he sinned against a lot of people. He sinned against Uriah. He sinned against uh, his wife, against Bathsheba. He sinned against the nation. But against you and you alone have I sinned. And this is important for us to understand because when it says that Jesus is our peace, Jesus is our peace because he came to make peace, between us and God, and Jesus alone can reconcile us to God because He is fully man and fully God. So before we we move into kind of what Paul is talking about, uh, there's a couple other things that I wanted to to point out from Colossians chapter one, verses nineteen and twenty. I want us to have these. Uh, next two verses in our mind as we go through um, our passage in Ephesians today. Colossians 1, 19 and 20. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So all things. All things will be reconciled to God. All things... We'll be at peace, but we'll talk a little bit more about what that means. That doesn't mean a universalist idea where at the end, everybody comes in. That's not what that means. The next verse I wanted to have in our minds is 2 Corinthians 5, 21. And we know this one well, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So, so Jesus is our peace. Verse 14 says, For he himself is our peace. If we are to find peace, we are to find it in Christ. So He, Jesus is the embodiment of peace. If we desire peace, we come to him. We know no peace outside of him. And I wanted to make this point clear because one of the most understood, misunderstood ideas concerning peace is whom we must be reconciled with. Um as we look further in our passage in just a moment, we'll see the second type of, type of peace we lack, and that is that is peace from one to another. And that's what Paul was primarily dealing with today. But I wanted us to have this understanding and this idea in our mind that, that we must have peace with God. We have violated His laws. Which of His laws have we violated? All. Because we fail to keep one one point, we are guilty concerning the whole law of God. So in verse fourteen, for he himself is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Our need for peace is primarily a peace uh, for peace with God, but not only that, Paul is writing to a, a body of mixed believers. About the need for Jews and Gentiles to be united in Christ. Last week, Dale mentioned that, um, to the Jew, Gentiles were dogs. Even Jesus said this. He made this statement. He, he brought this out and brought to light this idea that Gentiles were by the Jews considered dogs and that Jews were by the Gentiles considered savages they were considered um, violent and they had a history of well they came into Canaan and pretty much took what they wanted and um, so they they have this this history between these two groups of people and it's kind of a binary classification you're either a Jew or you're a Gentile there's not a, a third group um, so there's this need for redemption. And Paul understood that in our redemption through Christ that we're being made a new race, that we are being made into a different people, that Jesus is calling out for himself a separate people. We are already one race. Whether you're Indonesian or Mexican or African or Polynesian, we're one race of people. In the town where I work in, I meet people with my same last name all the time. There are lots of Adkinses in the Round County, Elliott County, Carter County area, and they say, "I wonder if we're related." And I will say, "Well, if you go back far enough, we are, because it's true. You may have to go really far back, but if you go back far enough, Hamsham and Hamsham uh, and Jeppeth, we are all related. We are of one blood. All of the world." But it is a, so we are united in this way, and, and strangely enough, even though we're united in blood, this is the one, one of the biggest contentions that we have. One of the biggest fights that we see is over what we term as race, but it's really an ethnic or cultural situation. Everywhere that I've lived, I've seen this. I've seen different groups of people have contention based on those ethical issues. So if we're already united in blood, what's the problem? Our flesh is corrupted. So our unity is also corrupted. And the thing that that should unite us, this common blood, is one of our greatest dividers. So what has Christ done? Christ has come to make a new race, not of the flesh, but of the spirit. 1 Corinthians 12 Verses 12 and 13 says, uh, 1 Corinthians 12, 12 and 13, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we are all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, we are all made to drink of one spirit. Now, I understand that, that we will be resurrected and we will have a body. That's not the, the flesh that I'm dealing with. The flesh that I'm dealing with is the, is the corrupted flesh, the, the flesh that pulls us to sin, the flesh, the flesh that rejects God, that rejects obedience in God, and that is incapable of knowing God, the flesh that wars within us. So Jesus is making for himself a new people. Jesus is making or has made for himself a new race. He has brought us in to be one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. If you thought about it and you were honest of a type of person that you just cannot get along with, if you were to think people who, who live this way, I cannot abide. Maybe it's how you grew up. You can't, you can't abide the type of people that you grew up with. Or maybe it's someone who has offended you or someone that you think is in some way inferior. And if you were to think about it, you could probably pin down what it is, is that wall of hostility. There's something, some barrier between the two of you that keep you apart. And it most likely comes down to to pride and to sin. But what, what Jesus has done and is doing, he has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So the, the thing that separated the Jew and the Gentile, Jesus was quite well aware of. He was quite well aware of the history. He's quite well aware of the the sinful divisions. And he has broken these things down. For us to enjoy peace with God and peace with one another, we have to be moved from a reliance on our flesh to be joined with God in Christ. Well, how is this done? How, How is God going to take the Jew and the Gentile, and to reconcile them together into one race. How is he to make the lion to lie down with the lamb? How is he to... That to me is a, is a vivid picture that is incomprehensible. I, there are, there are, are built-in certain instincts, and in my mind, if a lion sees a lamb, it sees lunch. Lunch. And it's the same with us. There are certain people that if we, if we see them, there is triggered a response that is in our flesh. But God is doing this, and He says that He's going to do this through Paul. He says that in, in His body, that He's going to break down this wall of hostility. Well, let's look at, at verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in himself one new man in place of the two so making peace and on the first reading this might seem maybe a little confusing or a little contradictory because uh, particularly in light of Matthew 5:17 Matthew 5:17 Jesus says these are his words do not think that i have come to abolish the law or the prophets i have not come to abolish them but to fulfill them So Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law, but Paul says he's going to unite Jew and Gentile by doing just that. So what what does this mean? How how are we to understand that? Well, I think the appropriate question is, what law is Jesus abolishing? And it's not the capital L law, as we see, like the Mosaic law. And it's not the the prophets. He's not going to erase prophets from history. No, but it's the ceremonial law. It's the traditional ceremonial law that the that the Pharisees took so much pride in. That Paul himself would thump his chest over and say, "I was a Jew of Jews, circumcised on the eighth day." He was extremely proud in of his understanding of the law, and not only that, but the way that he assaulted people with it we do this we take truth from the word of god and we thump people on the head with it um so this and that's that's pride so what jesus is saying there are these things there are these barriers that are within the jewish culture that that are going to be torn down because they're a division we read about the issue of circumcision um some of the the judaites were were adamant that gentiles that became christians had to be circumcised and there was division and discussion over that um we can go back and read about uh peter and cornelius about how how god came down and 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 discussed the clean and the unclean and 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 how our heart is changed and our mind is reoriented when we understand what it is that makes us clean versus what makes us unclean. Jesus says it's not what put what you know comes out of your your mouth that makes you unclean. It's 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 what's in your heart. That's where the, everything comes from. It's not what you put in your body, but it's what comes out of your your mouth that makes you unclean. So this, this law was used, as ceremonial law was often used to justify a hatred of the Gentiles and to declare them unclean. It had become a stumbling bo- block for those who desired to be close to God. The law, ceremonial law, it made the idea of grace difficult to understand because it was a ladder. It was a thing you could do. And a lot of times when we have things that we can do, it makes more sense for us to rely on the things that we can do than upon the things that we can't see. Or, strictly speaking, relying upon God to do things that we cannot do, to release these things. when Maybe we feel like we should be doing something, but to allow the grace of God to be what it is it is unmerited favor so it was a it was a stumbling block and i think this is why it's important for churches to continually evaluate why we do things why do we do this in a certain way is is the is this thing that we're doing biblical are the 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 methods that we use are these things good are they profitable or are they harming people or are they, are they stumbling people are they based on our preferences or our preconceived ideas about how church ought to be done, how worshiping God ought to be done? Um, Alicia got a shirt this week. "Simper Reformanda, always reforming. That should be our our mindset, that we should always be, because as we grow in Christ, as we're sanctified, our understanding of what is good and profitable changes always reforming as, as by God's grace. He continues to sanctify us. So Jesus is abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two. So making peace. Um, in verse 16, it says, And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. There are many times when I need to kill my hostility. When I'm upset about something, when I things have not gone the way that I had hoped they would go, and I'm mad about that. It's very important for me to do is for me to take a step back and realize that most likely the reason that I'm upset, the reason that I'm pouting, the reason that I'm frustrated is because of my own sinful nature, my sinful desire that hostility needs to be killed. There are a lot of points of theology that, that Christians argue over and primary issues of salvation, those things are worth contending, but I think we like to argue over secondary and tertiary issues. Um I see this especially among the reformed community. There are a lot of online groups and things like that 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 I am periphery to and it's like all everybody wants to do is argue about whether you should baptize your baby or not or you know, what does the sabbath look like and it's 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 very easy for us to be contentious over those things. But have, have you really considered who you might encounter in heaven? Do you think maybe there will be people there that you have written off? <laughs> Are there people there? There certainly will be people that you disagree with theologically. I say it all the time. We'll all die with bad theology. We should strive to have good theology. We should strive in holiness to honor God according to His Word. That should be our focus of our entire life. That should be the direction that we're aimed. But we'll all miss. We all have indwelling sin. I would see this sometimes when the boys were little. They just would fight over anything and everything, and there would be moods or modes they would be in where they just wanted to fight. And one of the best things that I figured out that I could do, I mean, you would separate them, you'd spank them, you'd take away everything, whatever, none of that worked. I would say, let's go to the park. The tears dried up. They were hugging each other as they were running to get their shoes on. Let's go to the pool. It completely changed the attitude. The hostility was slain in that moment. And I thought about that as I read the the passage this week. Because what Christ does is when he brings us to himself, the hostility dies. We're no longer concerned about the things that divide us. We no longer will have to be right. We can be wrong, and that'll be okay. It won't bother us. When we are brought to Christ, and everything is about our proximity to Jesus, if we find ourselves, our prayer life is dry, if we find ourselves in, in thoughts of things that are sinful and dwelling on things that are harmful, we won't find that we are right by Jesus we find that we have moved ourselves far away. We know that that sin can't dwell in the presence of God. So our proximity to Christ is so important. And this is what he's done. He has made for himself a new man out of the two, joining them together. That's another, to me, another metaphor, another picture of marriage, where you take two different people and you make them one flesh, and that's why it's a it's a mystery and it's a it's a beautiful thing for us to consider. And marriage points to salvation in Christ. Marriage points to our redemption. But we won't we won't care as we are reconciled to God. We will also be reconciled one to another. This is this is a byproduct. As we draw closer to God, it becomes more and more difficult for us to hold on to our hostility that we have against the person that we don't like. That seems less important, and we also are convicted to understand that there is no person alive who can do as much injury to me as I have done to God's honor. No person can sin against me in as grievous a way as I have sinned against God, yet I am forgiven. So that hostility, it evaporates. So Paul is, is reminding these, these Ephesians, but also the, the, the Jewish and the and the Jewish, uh, the Jew and the Gentile, he's reminding them both something that's very important for us all to understand. Everyone starts in the same place. There's no one who is born and say, oh, he's already saved. This one's saved. We don't have to worry about preaching the gospel to this person ever. No. We are all born. We're still born in the spirit. When we enter into life in that moment, we enter into a sinful flesh, Jew, Gentile, gone to church every day of your life for 50 years. Never darken the door. Apart from Christ, we're all the same. And Paul continues as he is reminding the Jew and the Gentiles, he's reminding these Ephesians about their own salvation, and he is explaining to them how they're being moved from this hostility into a place of unity. In verse 17 he says, And he came and preached to you who were far off, preach peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. Sometimes if you've been a believer in a certain context for a certain period of time, you get the idea that God works through his people in a certain way. This is my experience. This is how it's done. This is how people come to Christ. I've seen it, you know, and whatever the context may be, you you get comfortable with that idea. But there are people right now in this moment coming to Christ that you will never meet. And if you were to meet them, you probably couldn't communicate with them because they may speak a different language or, or are in a completely different context from you. The gospel is going forth in the whole world right now. And this is what Paul wanted to communicate to Ephesus. To some who were far off, Ephesus would be considered far off from Jerusalem. And to some who were near, those who were part of the dispersion who were in Jerusalem but had since been scattered by Nero and and, and a myriad of other things. So for, for both of you, he came, Christ came and he preached peace. He preached peace. He's making for himself a people from those whom he preached this peace. God has been doing things to bring about your salvation and the salvation of everyone who will call unto himself. He's been doing that since before time began. It's important for us to remember too There are things that are going to happen to you in the future that you are not prepared for that God has been prepared for before you were ever even uh, brought to be. He has gone ahead. He's gone to the far places and He's gone to the near places. So as, as as we pray for salvation to come, it's important that we think about those places, those places that are different than us, the people that are different than us, that God brings his salvation, his way. We know that it comes through the preaching of his word. We know that, and this is is underlined again, because it it says he came and preached peace to the far off and to the near. But God is assembling for himself a race of people to follow him. John 4, 3, uh, another verse that I love. For the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshippers worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. It doesn't say what nationalities of people he's looking for. It doesn't say that, that he's looking for some Jews. It doesn't say he's looking for some Gentiles. It doesn't say that he's, he's looking for some Canadians. It says he's looking for people to worship him in spirit and in truth. So these aren't Jews, these aren't Gentiles, these are saints. Made one flesh in Christ. Paul finishes up in verse 18 to say, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the people that I was mentioning a little bit ago that are somewhere that you'll never meet, that have come to Christ today that you couldn't communicate with if you were sitting next to them. The same spirit is what can change their heart from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh. That same spirit indwells them that indwells you. So if you want to talk about being unified with people, and we can, we can rally around a lot of things, sports if you see somebody with a hat on of the team you like the two of you can instantly have a have a communication but have you ever been somewhere far away and met somebody and Jesus came up and instantly you were brothers or sisters with that person instantly there's a, a connection and you can as you interact with them see the spirit of God working in them it's a completely different experience than meeting a uk fan in Alaska Alaska, which we've done. It's a completely different experience because the thing that you realize is when my time is done, when I'm dead, I'll see this person again. We'll dwell together because Christ in His blood is making us one race. He's making one people. We all have access to one God through one spirit by the blood of one Christ. So through Christ we, Jew and Gentile, have access to the Father. We have peace with God and therefore peace with one another. One thing I want to remind us of um, is what peace doesn't mean. And, and it doesn't mean that we will have peace with a sinful world. That's, that's not a reality for the Christian and they will hate us because they first hated him. Uh, John 15, John 15. I'm going to, I'm going to read all 18 through 25. <clears throat> John 15, 18 through 25. If The world hates you. Know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, They would not have been guilty of sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. For whoever hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and my father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. People are going to hate you without a cause. It isn't our our mission to make peace with the world. In fact, we shouldn't make peace with the world. We should go into the world and take peace with us and be prepared for it to be rejected. Jesus didn't come into the world to make peace with it. He came to make for himself, uh, to find for himself new people, to make a new race and to reconcile them to God. When Jesus returns, he'll come with a sword. So there will be peace. When Christ returns, there will be peace. There will be those who are in Christ, those who um, are, have a part of Christ's kingdom, those who have been redeemed, those who have been changed and reconciled, and then those who, there will be those who oppose God but are at peace with Him because they have no means to stand before God. Where will you stand? Will you stand with Christ? Will you surrender your life? Will you surrender your desire for sinful things? Will you surrender the, the flesh that is at war with God in lieu of being made a new race, and being made a, a new creation, as the Scripture said? Will you turn from your sin and repent? Romans 10, 9. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Is that what you will do? Because there is is no escape from God's wrath. There's not a, a third option. There is not those who are redeemed of God, those who are cursed by God and face his wrath and then some third group there is no third group when you face God in judgment you will either be covered by the blood of the lamb who was slain or you will be cast into eternal torment it is it is important for us all to realize that's what we deserve We deserve to be put apart from God. We deserve his wrath. But God, but God, he has made for himself a people for himself. If you desire to be a part of that race of people, then fall on God's mercy. Cry out to him. Declare Jesus as the Savior of the world. Profess with your mouth that He has that God that He died and was raised. Repent of your sin and follow Christ. This is what the Word says that He that He came to far and to near to preach peace. Do you desire peace with God? And for. For those of us who are believers, do we believe and understand this peace? Is it our desire to, to spread this peace? To take this peace into the world? Because the world is dying. The world is at, at war with, with each other, with themselves, and primarily the world is at war with God. So my admonition for all of us is, is to be agents of peace, to take the message that Jesus is peace and take it to all the world. Let's pray together. Most gracious God, we're in desperate need of the peace that you bring. We're in desperate need, Father, to be reconciled to you, And for those who you have redeemed, each day we need to come and be reminded of how we were reconciled so that we can be encouraged to take this gift of reconciliation into the world, to take your gospel to all corners. Father, I pray we would have a desire for this peace for ourselves, but also for our neighbor. And, Father, that we would share in your desire that um, none would perish. And, Father, as we think on these things, I pray you would help us this week to deal with those with whom we need to reconcile, our brothers and sisters. That You would help us to deal with those with whom we have enmity and for us to understand that there's, there's no place among brothers and sisters for that type of strife and father this week I pray that you would help us to uh, know what it means that Jesus is the prince of peace that Jesus is peace and the father uh, that if it would be your will that many could be reconciled to him use us father we pray we ask this in Christ's name Amen